What is up, guys? Welcome to this episode of the Ace of Spada podcast, hosted by your boy right here, Anthony Spada. And on today's episode, I am joined by Brandon DeCruz. Brandon touches on everything metabolic adaptations. That's the one thing he came to me when we were discussing about having him on, is that he is in, he does podcasts all the time on this. So I want to bring this educational opportunity right to you guys because I am all about now educating as much as I can to you. So you're going to want to grab a notebook, sit down, and listen to this whole, I believe it's just over an hour of the podcast. I honestly don't know as I'm recording this, but it's it was such a good episode. So many things to take away about metabolic adaptations. But before we get to the episode, as you guys know, the podcast has teamed up with Morphogen Nutrition, the best supplement company in the world, hands down, third-party tested supplements. They have something for everything that you need. Um, and man, I can't even say enough about Ben and Deidre and the whole team. They've been so supportive of this podcast. And I just want to get back to you guys. So you can co- you can use code SPADA for 10% off all supplements. My favorite right now, I'm actually rocking some Adaptogen. That's a good one. Morphocom is always a good one. I use it with every single one of my clients. And and Volugen. If you want some nice pump while you're getting a workout on, you want to use that product. 100% guarantee. And as you guys know, 2020 is coming to a close here. So if you want to get an early start on your goals, we only got two weeks left. I am a coach. I help people become as this podcast has stated, an ace in the deck of cards known as life. So if you want to actually learn to become an ace, learn how to develop really good habits, learn how to take your physique to the next level, contact your boy. Um, actually, in the show notes, my link to my coaching application is in there. So just go fill that out, and I'll get back to you within 24 hours to set up a Zoom call. So let's get, let's get right to it. I'm not going to waste any more of your guys' time. So let's welcome on Brandon. Day cruise. All right. Um, well, welcome to the show, Brandon. Um, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, this has been, you know, actually you found me about a few weeks ago. I want to say that's that's when it kind of happened. I think you were you were listening to uh, my man Scooby Prep, Jason Theobald's Absolutely. episode. Um, that was a really good one to record. Um, I appreciate actually. That was the last episode I did record with a guest. So you're the oh, first wow, okay. one in about in a few weeks to kind of record an episode with. <laughs> Let's go. Um, awesome, man. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you guys, you have a great show. And obviously, I've been on the Excellence Cartel with uh, Jason himself. So I'm a big fan of his work. I honestly, when I first got into like the boards and stuff were really popular. So we're going like 10, 15 years back. And like Scooby used to post on everything. So being on his show was amazing first and foremost, but following him throughout the industry and everything he's done since that time, like going from being a a corporate lawyer and a firm to now one of the the most world-renowned coaches, you know, around anytime he's on something, I'm, I'm cued in, I'm listening. Yeah. So, so am I, I think the excellence cartel is probably one of my favorite shows. Um, if not the, probably the most listened to podcast I probably listened to, um, just because of the guests they have on. So I, my goal is to get on their show one day. So that's what I'm hoping for. Um, but it's incredible to have you on. So kind of give just a quick introduction to yourself, um, who you are, what you do, um, how you got into coaching and fitness and stuff. 
All right, so uh, my name is Brandon DeCruz. I'm an online nutrition coach. I'm also the national sales director of Anova Farm, which is a New York-based supplement company. Yep. And uh, I'm an MPC competitor as well. So um, I've been in the fitness industry, honestly, for the last 12 years, mostly in the supplement sector, um, seven of which, the last seven years I've spent coaching as well. So I kind of got into this industry in a little bit different of an aspect than most people. Um, I did a lot of weight-restricted sports, so I did – competitive martial arts as a kid doing karate tournaments and things of that sort. And then I actually did long distance running. So I was in this context of like, I was in these sports that were always like weight restricted and I became very aware of calories and intake at a very young age. We're talking nine or 10 years old. I was carrying around because at the time, you know, we're going back almost 20 years. There wasn't my fitness pal. There wasn't calorie yeah. trackers. So I would have like my calorie counting books and then I would be looking at the barcodes or, or the um, nutrition labels of food at nine or 10 years old. Now, mind you, you have to realize that that's not a healthy thing. I would suggest if anyone's young listening in this audience, don't be doing that. You know, it's good to know about your nutrition, but I became very obsessed with it and I developed an eating disorder as a result. So with that being said, I was lucky to stumble upon people with greater knowledge. At that time, it was the early 2000s. We had people like Lyle McDonald coming to the forefront with evidence-based uh, nutrition. We had Lee Norton was actually in college at the time, but he was really big on the boards for bodybuilding.com and things of that sort. And then Alan Aragon. So those were probably the three guys that were the first people that I was looking to and getting information from and realizing, wow, you know, I'm severely depriving myself of food. You know, I'm de developing anorexia. I'm counting my calories. I'm eating 800 calories a day and running hours per day. And I'm in karate class hours per day. And yes, it's, it's with a goal in mind because I'm trying to stick to a certain weight class, but it's, it's causing me to develop injuries. It's causing me to develop, you know, a bad relationship with food. So once I started looking at food and nutrition as fuel, I got like deeply entrenched into it and I started training. And, um, at that point I, I stopped looking at food as, as something that I needed to avoid and I embraced it as something that could be a great addition to the rest of my training, to the rest of my, my life in general. So at that point, I started weight training, got very heavily into it. I kind of stopped doing most of the sports that I was doing, or especially, you know, the karate and the competitive um, running that was causing me to have that bad relationship with food and really analyze or overanalyze my nutrition and my calorie intake and things of that sort. And then all throughout college, I was um, very, very active within um, fitness modeling. That's the first thing I got into that really put me in the path of, you know, really monitoring my macronutrient intake, really dialing in my diet, my training my supplementation. And all throughout that time, I worked in the supplement industry. So I started, you know, managing supplement shops at 16. And at this point, I've been multi, uh, national sales director of multiple large brands uh, nationwide, you know, guys like Sensorian Labs, Nutribio Labs, now Innova Farm. I've worked with um, the largest corporate distributors in the country. So I worked at Lone Star Distribution, which is now defunct. And I also worked at Europa Sports um, Distribution, which is the sponsors of like the Arnold and Olympia. Yeah. So I've traveled the world, you know, pretty much or traveled the country, um, you know, giving presentations on supplementation, on sports nutrition, on nutrition. And within that time, I've always tried to be a walking representative of this fitness lifestyle. So what I really see prevalent in my industry, which is primarily the sports nutrition industry, is we have a lot of sales guys. So think about like the sales industry in and of itself. It's mostly guys, you know, they're looking, they're all numbers oriented. So a lot of times, they, they, they aren't the healthiest guys. We're on the road traveling. I mean, there's been years that I've traveled 75,000 miles in a year, um, you know, flying all over the place, being in different time zones, three different time zones in a week. It's not a healthy lifestyle. So I've always tried to be the type 
that I'm not only promoting these products, you know, obviously for a financial gain, but I, I promote them because I truly believe in them and I walk the lifestyle. I've competed, uh, you know, 14 times at this point. I've had, I've done more than 100 professional photo shoots and I've coached hundreds of athletes. So uh, seven years ago, I, I really started getting more into nutrition coaching. I realized that there was a lot of people that were being misinformed and they also were developing bad relationships with food. So I took the evidence-based and the research background that I had from, from my career and I applied it to nutrition coaching. And since that point, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that the evidence-based scene has become more prominent because when I first started, especially within competing and within uh, modeling, we were big into the industry of like metabolic damage. It was that in, it was that point in, in the industry where every every bikini girl had metabolic damage, <laughs> and every person was in starvation mode. And we're going to touch on the topic of metabolic adaptation. But it was clients that I had coming to me, and also you know coworkers and people within my my you know subsector that were complaining about having metabolic damage and all these down regulations from dieting and not understanding them. That really caused me to dive in deep into metabolic adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, I think I kind of learned your approach literally right off the bat when we're when we were even having conversations based off of last night too. It's like you even just having a really direct conversation, you were able to provide studies like right off the bat of things that you researched and things that you've actually looked over, which is a pretty cool approach. I feel like a lot of people you married the two where you married bro science mixed in with evidence based because a lot of people tend to go to one side or the other. And, Absolutely. and don't mix them together where mixing them together would be that literally the best direct path to have for client success. So I'm in the same boat there. I'm always studying, always learning. Um, that's why I do this anyway, um, because I basically get a chance to pick your brain for one hour. Uh, and it usually would cost money to do that. So to do it for free is oh, pretty, yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so we're going to get right into it with metabolic adaptations. I'm going to let you just take the floor and just talk and literally just talk and I'll ask questions kind of in the middle. Awesome. So I want to give just a preface to this conversation and this topic in general, because I did a full like deep dive on metabolic adaptation on the excellence cartel this summer. And I got a lot of feedback from people. And initially I think it was perceived uh, in a different fashion than I intended to. So a lot of people came to me and they said, you know, are you against dieting because of all these metabolic adaptations and all this kind of stuff? And it's not that at all. If, if you see, if you follow me, if you see the athletes, you know, I work with multiple IFBB pros, you know, I am a big proponent of dieting, but I'm a proponent of understanding what you're getting into if you are going to go through the lengths to get into extreme condition. Yeah. So my whole, my whole approach to things is having a base level understanding of something before you get into it and being aware because ignorance is never going to serve you. Um, a lot of times people have misconceptions within this industry or they fall, you know, prey to myths and misconceptions because they don't have an understanding and they don't have the interest or the curiosity to dive in deep like you or myself do. So I want to just preface the metabolic adaptation with people understanding what fat loss is um, essentially or what happens with fat loss. You know, in order to understand why metabolic adaptation, you know, happens, we have to understand like how our body perceives and responds to weight loss. Um, first and foremost, the human body hasn't always will prioritize survival. So our, our reason for being here is to have enough energy to support our functions, especially reproduction. So when we start the process of losing weight by restricting the amount of calories we take in, we're essentially signaling to our body that we're in an energy deficit, which is often perceived by the brain and more specifically the hypothalamus that we're in a potentially dangerous state. 
So it's especially important to note that the body doesn't care nor realize that we're purposely reducing calories um, and increasing energy output via like cardio and increased activity to lose body fat and get shredded. It doesn't know that, nor does it care. Yeah. It really cares about preserving vital functions to life, such as reproduction. Um, so this is what brings us to the condition, which is referred to as metabolic adaptation. So to go into more in depth of what metabolic adaptation is, we have to realize that when we lose weight, we're essentially becoming lighter, smaller human beings, um, with less metabolically active tissue. That means both less fat mass, but also less muscle mass. So this causes our metabolic rate to go down. However, metabolic adaptation actually refers to the fact that there's a larger down regulation in our metabolic rate than we'd expect just due to the loss of lean mass. Um, so this is essentially an adaptive reduction in energy expenditure. Um, this is commonly seen in like a dieting phase where we make an adjustment to induce a greater deficit, but the, the longer we do this, the more we realize that we have to continually make adjustments just to get an effect. So for instance, what initially gave you a, a great rate of loss, say, you know, I generally um, suggest or the approach that I take with my own clients is a rate of loss of 0.5 to 1% of total body weight per week. Well, initially, that might have happened at 300 calories of a reduction from your, your maintenance calorie level. But as you get deeper and deeper into the diet, you'll notice that you have to, you know, go lower and eat less and essentially pull more calories than you anticipated uh, based purely off of like total body weight that you lost. So that's where we're really starting to see, all right, well, our body is downregulated and not responding as well or as favorably as it did initially. And that's because of the downregulations. So these metabolic adaptations essentially are done or happen within our system because it's trying to help us become more efficient during periods of low energy availability. And this affects everything you could think of from hormones to our activity levels, to mitochondria efficiency, to our appetite regulation, our hormones within that, to energy output or like the amount of calories you burn. So when we look into the research on metabolic adaptation, this was honestly never seen before like 2014. So that's okay. where I'm saying when I first started coaching, it was 2013. So I had so many bikini girls because the bikini class, I believe it started in 2011 and then men's physique started in 2012. And so these are more of the classes that essentially were the first to really experience this. You really didn't hear about metabolic damage or starvation mode from bodybuilders. Honestly, it just wasn't something that was prevalent. Yeah. People just suffered. They had a, a more hardcore mentality, but with a sport becoming more popular as it did when these two classes, men's physique and bikini came, um, became part of the MPC, you had more and more people getting exposed and getting involved in this. So now we had a larger subset of people that were now experiencing the good and the bad of competing. So in the research, um, once we've lost a significant amount of weight, which is technically you know, um, designated by 10% of our body weight or more, our total daily energy um, expenditure reduces by 20 to 25%, which is actually much greater than we'd expect from just a total loss of mass. So this is essentially an adaptive downregulation, which is due to our, uh, our body becoming more efficient and able to do more while burning less. So really with that being said, like these are the metabolic adaptations you're seeing as a result of just losing body weight. And it's something that we wouldn't expect. Like we're burning a sufficient amount of less calories than we'd expect. Yeah. And that's why people will say, you know, I'm, I'm eating nothing and I'm not losing weight or, you know, I'm, I'm on poverty calories. That's a, a statement that people always use. I'm on poverty calories. And now, you know, it's towards the latter end of the diet where initially someone might've started from an off season 
um, uh, set point at like 4,000 calories as a maintenance, but now they're on, you know, 2,500 calories and they're saying, I'm hardly eating anything, but I'm not losing any more fat. It's because um, metabolic adaptations have occurred and essentially cause our metabolic rate and everything that's involved with our metabolism to downregulate. Yeah. So, so you're becoming more efficient. So your body's becoming, to kind of put it in layman terms, your body's becoming more efficient. Uh, actually with everything. with everything yeah yeah and that's that's just a survival mechanism so if we really think about it from like a logistical perspective say that we were hundreds of years ago like our body is is not much more evolved than it was in ancestral times so it doesn't know that we have a kroger or a walmart down the yeah. street and that we have <laughs> that we're literally you know inducing a deficit purposely so it's not like it knows that we have you know instant energy you know uh, a couple miles away from us so really what it's trying to do is make sure that you have that the energy you are taking in is being used as efficiently as possible for necessary, you know, necessary functions. So that's to power your, your organs or to, you know, help your organs function, to help with brain efficiency, things of that sort. And then what actually gets downregulated are more like physical activities that we would purposely choose to do. So if we look at things like that are downregulated within uh, metabolic adaptation, we have to look at metabolism as a whole. So a lot of times people only look at metabolism as one thing, which is our basal metabolic rate. Yep. And th despite the fact that basal metabolic rate does account for the majority of our metabolism, we also have three other subsectors of metabolism that are downregulated and that we also have to take into consideration. So those other subsectors are your thermic effect of feeding. So essentially how much calories or how much energy is burned in the process of assimilating and digesting the nutrients you take in. We have to look at our exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is any energy that is utilized in the process of purposeful activity or purposeful exercise. So this is your training, your purposeful cardio, any of that energy that is utilized, that's part of our metabolic rate or part of our metabolism. And the last, which is the most overlooked, which we're going to speak a lot on in depth, is our need. So that's our non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is everything that's non-purposeful activity. So this could range from anything from walking from the parking lot of a store into the store so that just regular movement it could uh it's considered like blinking your hand gesturing things of that sort and that's actually what um is shown to be the biggest down regulating aspect that metabolic adaptation affects yeah because you always see it because like the number one thing that you could see and to give an example here is um whenever you introduce more food to clients they're more there's well, the one way that we always track, and I'm pretty sure this is probably how you track it, is just by steps. Um, and the one thing I always see is whenever I raise someone's food, steps automatically increase. Like it's like like I just made a change in my in my one client's diet, and I bumped him up like 25 carb, and his steps went up like 2,000, and he yeah. found like another another level to push it, and he felt the need to go on more walks and need to step more. Absolutely. So just like you're perceiving, you're seeing with your clients, and I see the same thing, that need goes up as you introduce more energy. The same thing happens as we detract energy. So as we reduce calories, our bodies, the amount of unconscious activity that we do starts to downregulate. So the biggest thing with metabolic adaptation, and this is something that I tell people not to fear this like a boogeyman, it's that everything that is done on the way down during a diet, so all the hormonal adaptations, all the... Um, impacts to your satiety hormones, to your NEAT levels, to your total uh, metabolic rate. Everything that happens on the way down will upregulate on the way up. So as you introduce calories again, that's how you undo metabolic adaptation. But it's important to note that there's certain things like NEAT that we should really pay attention to during a diet because 
it's a big percentage of our energy expenditure that if we're not paying attention to, it could easily halt your fat loss progress. So think about it theoretically. We know that our basal metabolic rate is going to come down as we start to reduce our calories and we become a lighter human being. So basal metabolic rate is dependent on two things, total body mass and the amount of muscle tissue that you have. Yep. So those two things are reduced during a diet. So as you diet, as you become a leaner individual, both your total body mass and the amount of skeletal muscle tissue that you have decreases. So it's, it's well known that your basal metabolic rate should go down, especially even if you were to do it in like those online calculators, you're going to do your height, you're going to put your total body weight. So these are metrics that we're already seeing being reduced. So that's expected from metabolic adaptation. Now the thermic effective feeding. Now this is probably the smallest percentage yeah. of what's actually impacted by metabolic adaptation. I think it's like it five, accounts. five to 10% or something like that. Exactly. Five to 10%. So if we really think about it, proteins being maintained during a diet for the most part, that's the biggest, uh, the macronutrient with the highest thermic effect, but fat and carbohydrates continually reduce, but it's not a, a dramatic amount of reduction in terms of, yes, we're, we're eating a lot less food, but it doesn't account for that much calorie burning okay. in comparison from an off season perspective to a, um, to a dieting. And then our exercise activity thermogenesis, those are one thing or one aspect that we really keep a really tight eye on during, during a dieting phase. We're ensuring, or most people should be ensuring that they're providing a sufficient training stimulus. So you're tracking your training, you're making sure you're getting in a sufficient amount of sessions per week. And generally people will do purposeful cardio, whether that's steady state, whether that's hit training, something of that sort. Those are all three things that we're tracking. We expect to be downregulated, but the things we're not paying attention to are, are we blinking a lot? Are we um, all of a sudden becoming a little bit lazier throughout the day? It's this unconscious activity. The fact that you might walk past your mailbox and, and just say, you know what, I'll, I'll get the mail later. You know, or I'll get it tomorrow. It's stuff like that that we don't think as exercise that really gets downregulated during a diet and we become more sluggish. And there's this, this theory that when we become, when we pay attention only to the factors that are within our control, so only the, the purposeful factors of exercise, like say we were to do an immense amount of cardio, there's a lot of times we'll see a compensation in meat where we actually undo the amount of calories that we burned by doing less throughout the day. So it's like yeah. this compensatory mechanism where it's like, all right, I slammed, you know, an hour of cardio. Now I sit on the couch more. Yeah. So this, these are things that I'm always trying to make clients aware of because it's these little things that could account for huge reasons or a huge amounts of why we see a down regulation beyond what is expected. Um, so that's a big question I always get. It's like, all right, so metabolic adaptation is seeing a larger down regulation beyond what is expected from a diet. But why does that happen? So we have to think about the fact that when we're dieting, most of these things or most of these down regulations are because of the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus simply is a structure in the brain which takes in and interprets information pertaining to energy intake and then availability and energy expenditure. So think about it during the terms of the diet. Um, when we're taking in less energy, we're taking in less food, our hypothalamus perceives that we're in a dangerous state, that we're in a low energy, uh, energy availability state. So it starts down-regulating things. So that's the main component. But one of the biggest things that gets down-regulated during a diet is leptin. So leptin is, is a hormone primarily uh, secreted and produced by fat cells. Yep. So essentially signals to our brains that we're well-fed and everything's good. So everything's sufficient. We're in a healthy state. But as we reduce calories um, and we lower body fat, all of a sudden our fat cells shrink and they produce and they excrete less leptin. So leptin you know, affects all hormones, 
pretty much. It affects thyroid hormones, sex hormones like testosterone, and cortisol, hunger hormones. Like if your leptin drops, which is your satiety hormone, your ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone, gets increased. And it also controls activity levels. So the longer we go onto a diet, the more our leptin drops, which essentially affects all other aspects of our energy expenditure. So it's one of the key, key hormones which signals to the hypothalamus that we have sufficient energy. But in those times that we're dieting, it's essentially signaling the whole time to our hypothalamus that we're, we don't have enough energy and we need to downregulate all our activity, all our movement, and all our energy expenditure just to save, uh, just to save enough energy to, for survival. So yeah. if um, I believe it was a review paper from Rosenbaum and LIBOR actually showed that approximately 85 to 90% of what we consider metabolic adaptation come from the down regulations in meat. But actually, if we look at the downstream effects, the reductions in meat are actually coming from the reductions in leptin. Okay. So leptin is essentially signaling to us, listen, this is non-necessary activity. We need to downregulate this. So it's, we have to realize that all this stuff is interlinked. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so sometimes when it's an embrace, a lot of people, coin this term during prep it's always just embrace the suck um you're always going to hit that phase where and this is where metabolic adaptations come in and this is where the neat comes in is when you push food down so far that you can't you can't take away anything from the input anymore and you have to increase the output so whether that's through cardio or even if you're trained well you should be training hard enough but and hopefully your training stays, it has to stay at a consistent, like hard ass level. And then you also got to add in your steps. So steps could see an increase. So it's kind of embracing that there's eventually going to be that embrace the suck kind of thing where you're not going to be able to take any more food away and you're just going to have to keep increasing output. Like you said, with those, those old bodybuilders that were hardcore, like that's what they went through. They would just keep going and going and going until there was no more. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. They, I feel like a lot of them didn't experience um, a lot of what we consider metabolic adaptation yeah. or the metabolic down regulations or it's that they did, but they, they compensated. So if you look at some of the old school bodybuilders, there's case studies on this where the average bodybuilder was doing over two hours of cardio. Now, if we look at the modern era of bodybuilder or competition, whenever a coach prescribes two hours of cardio, they're kind of looked down on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it might be done by a coach that's literally saying, hey, listen, I have everything else lined up. I have their energy intake lined up. They're in a deficit. I have their training lined up in terms of providing sufficient stimulus. They're training hard. They're training efficiently. They're maintaining muscle mass. All their supplementation is aligned. You know, their, their food intake is, is dialed in. They have enough micronutrients despite being in a deficit, but they're just not losing enough body fat, especially when there's an end date in mind. But as soon as, you know, we hear of this, say overuse quote unquote of cardio that coaches look down upon. So now we're kind of in a, in an era where people are judging coaches based off the methods they use, not realizing that there is no one size fits all method. So I'll, I'll give you my own experience as a coach. I've had some guys that I only track meat with some guys and girls that I only track meat, meat with in their preps. And then I have some people that I need to do a purposeful hour to an hour and a half of cardio. And the reason for their differences in approach to cardiovascular work or, or total activity is because of their lifestyle. So I have certain people that are competitive that work office jobs and are essentially sedentary the whole day. So their need, if I wasn't to increase it through purposeful cardio or their step count through purposeful cardio, they would get two or 3000 steps a day. Yeah. However, I have some guys that I don't have them do any 
cardio whatsoever because they work outdoor jobs that are labor intensive and essentially all their cardio is done throughout the, the course of their work day. So we have to look at things and, and really sep separate them into what is necessary to get the job done. And this is something that I really want to uh, make clear, especially to your audience, because I deal with, I work with a lot of competitors, but at the same time, I have a lot of experience with gen pop clients and what's necessary for a competitor to get into the extremes of conditioning. And I had a, a IPU pro just compete last month at the Chicago pro, which was held in Atlanta. And he was down to, I think on a deck set, like 4.1% body fat. What he needed to get there is different than my gen pop okay. client. Who's just trying to, you know, hit eight to 10% body fat. So what I, what I will hit on in these, in this uh, podcast about how to either, you know, undo metabolic adaptation or how to avoid it or how to better manage it. It's not applicable to all people. You have to realize what is, what is necessary for the goal that you have. And that's, that should be in any approach, whether it be to muscle building, to fat loss, to any type of uh, goal that you have, it has to be really customized to the individual themselves. Yeah. And that's actually what I want to hit on next is kind of how to combat these metabolic adaptations uh, to kind of bring up a point that we were discussing yet last night um, before in this question thing, I think I had, I had diet breaks um, to combat them. And you, uh, you hit me right with the study that, that kind of nailed it right on the head on why they might not work and your opinion of why they might not work. Um, so we won't go into maybe actually you might want to touch on why they might not work for you in your opinion, um, for it depends, like you said, it's kind of person to person. Absolutely. That's where I, that's where I was kind of going to ask this because sometimes for general pop clients, which I have some who are in fat loss phases right now, it, it actually could be more applicable. Yes. There is a point where for you, for say for a comp client, um, mm -hmm. getting them, they have a timeline but when you don't have a timeline, I feel like for a gen pop client to kind of bring them out sustainably and to put them in a great level, I feel like a diet break could be implemented. Um, but what are some of your ways other than maybe not using a diet break that you could combat metabolic adaptations through like refeeds and any other type of methods that you want to go into? Yeah, absolutely. So let me first hit on the diet breaks so we could just explain because diet breaks are very hot and popular in our in our space right now. Yeah. And I see justification as to why certain coaches use them and why research is so is diving deep into them. But what we have to realize is that there's only one to two studies on diet breaks currently. And the one that's most often cited is the Matador study. This was done on obese males that were inactive. So when I say that everything is context dependent, I mean that in every every scope. So what I always consider when I look at a research study is that, like you said in the beginning of this podcast, I try to combine the research with also my anecdotal experience. And I'm a big believer in discarding what is useless and taking on what is useful. So when I look at the Matador study, it's essentially looking at um, a continuous restriction or caloric restriction diet, which would just be an extended diet. I believe it was 16 weeks compared to a 32 week intermittent diet where they took a two week on two week off approach. Now in the um, Matador study, the results showed that it was more conducive or beneficial to do the diet break with these obese, inactive sedentary males. Yeah. Now we have to consider the fact that there's multiple aspects that we have to consider. So first and foremost, these aren't physique athletes. These aren't well experienced guys and these aren't lean individuals. So when I'm looking, when we were speaking yesterday, I was speaking more specifically about my competition yeah. clients, yeah. both men and females. They, first of all, we have an end date in mind. So to take 
to extrapolate a 16-week prep into a 32-week prep might not be feasible for the season that we're yeah. looking at. So time is, time is of the essence, first and foremost. The second thing is that we have to realize, we have to take someone, I'm a big proponent of, and a big believer in, you meet someone where they're at. So with my gen pop clients, have I used diet breaks? I have, but I've used more refeeds than I have diet breaks just yeah. because the research has been limited. But with the gen pop clients, so in your case, it would be pretty applicable to use a, a diet break strategy, maybe not two weeks on, two weeks off, but something like right now, um, there's research I think Bill Campbell's doing either two weeks on, one week off, or three weeks on, one week off. He has a study that's coming yeah, out. I do two weeks shortly. on. I do two weeks on, one week off for some awesome. of them. It just purely depends on their progress. If they hit us, if they sometimes, it purely depends on biofeedback when it comes down to it. As, as it always should. So with that, we have to realize that the study was done on people that had limited to no dieting experience. They were obese. So what we have to assume, or even if you look at the context of the study itself, they didn't have a good relationship with food and they didn't have good dieting habits. So when we look at the context in which the results came out that the diet break study or the diet break group did better, we have to realize that a 16 week continuous diet where you're at a sufficient deficit all 16 weeks for someone that has no experience dieting is going to lead to a lack of consistency and a lack of adherence. So with studies, a lot of times they don't have them in a metabolic ward, meaning they, they're not paying attention to them 24 hours a day. So it's almost like a self-reported study where you're saying, listen, these were the macros that you told me to hit. Yes, I hit them or no, I didn't. So there's a larger susceptibility for them to veer off plan and just misreport it or, or genuinely either avoid reporting it or genuinely misreport things. Because yep. we even have studies that show dietitians are 20 to 30% off their own reportings on their calorie intake. So if a dietitian that has experience with dieting is often off the mark, it's, it's easy to say that someone that has no experience dieting would be as well. So I feel like the findings in the Matador study were more due to the fact that this one group had limited experience dieting and they were more susceptible to veering off and overeating on their plan than it was just due to the, the, um, the efficacy of diet breaks. Because yes, will diet breaks contribute to having more adherent diet if you're someone with limited experience? Absolutely. But if we had to look at it in a metabolic ward, we would probably see that the differences between the two groups didn't yield much of any difference because they would both be at 16 weeks at a caloric deficit at equal deficit. However, if we look at it as, you know, the diet break group had two weeks on, then they had two weeks at maintenance where they relaxed and they didn't have this dietary fatigue that kept accumulating. They were more likely to hit the diet straight on because they had those two weeks breaks as compared to the 16 week continuous dieting group, which were more susceptible to, you know, lacking adherence or building dietary fatigue to the point that psychologically they needed a break and might have, you know, eaten more than they were supposed to. And that's what contributed to the differences in the two group eats. So I think with Gen Pop, if they are someone that is long-term minded, which I, I think a lot of people should be, and they're willing to take a more elongated approach, by all means, diet breaks are, are yeah. useful. However, really, when we look at the studies, it's been shown that there's a new study that's supposed to be coming out from Jackson Pios, which I hit on last night with you. He's a researcher out of Australia. Um, the findings haven't been completely extrapolated and, and given out just due to COVID. And, and if we look at most of the research world, a lot of these studies have been delayed in, in actually their conclusions. But really what he's seeing is more of psychological effects that these diet breaks give more than physiological effects. So what I mean by that is people are more adherent and consistent and able to stick to the plan because they're getting a break, but we're not seeing this massive 
upregulation in their, in their metabolism. We're not seeing that their metabolic rate is less compromised. We're not seeing that they're attenuating lean muscle tissue more and maintaining lean yeah. muscle tissue more than a continuous dieting group. So I'm looking at a physiological or from a physiological point, I'm saying, well, these diet breaks don't really have that great of a benefit. So yeah. when I'm working with physique athletes, um, you know, competitors or, or fitness models, I know that these guys are dialed in psychologically especially okay. because I do a very extensive consultation with them first and foremost, and I'm getting both their biofeedback from a physiological perspective, so internally, but also from a mental state. So when I'm looking at it, I'm saying, do I really want to elongate this process and make it longer than it needs to be? Because we have to consider when we elongate a diet, not only is that more time that we're spending in a total deficit, but also more time that we're spending away from making progress. So more time away from being in a surplus where we can actually accrue muscle tissue. So for a lot of competitors, for a lot of physique athletes, for a lot of um, fitness models, they want to compress their diet to a 12 to 16 week diet, hit their competition, reverse diet out and start making progress again. So it is all context dependent on the person. But when we look at how to attenuate or how to mitigate the down regulations associated with metabolic adaptation, there's a lot of things we need to look at. So it's not just from a dietary perspective, yeah. we will hit on refeeds and we'll hit on dietary approaches. But the one thing that I see people make the biggest mistake on during a diet is not monitoring training volume. So generally we have this misconception. People will start increasing training volume as a way of burning more calories and also say increasing rep counts because they want to you know, etch out the muscle more quote unquote and things of that sort. Yeah. When really, when you're in a deficit, so when you're in a diet and you're suffering from these metabolic adaptations, we have to remind, remember that testosterone is lowered in men Estrogen is lowered in females, so our main hormones, and then also our main catabolic hormones, cortisol, are increasing. So now this ratio of anabolic to catabolic hormones are skewed, which you know impacts our ability to maintain tissue. So when I see people increasing training volume, increased training volume should come when you're in a sufficient calorie state where you could actually recover and you're providing a stimulus and an overload that you're going to be able to adapt to. But when you're in a caloric deficit, you can't adapt to that. So what we really want to do is we want to monitor training volume first and foremost, and we want to monitor it in conjunction with recovery. So we have to make sure that any stimulus that we're providing our body with, we can recover from to maintain tissue and then limit pr the production of even more cortisol because training is a method of increasing cortisol. So that's the first thing we need to look at. The other thing from a dietary perspective, this is really what I look at from a fundamental dietary perspective. So when we're trying to, you know, offset some of the down regulations from metabolic adaptation, especially in terms of loosing muscle tissue, you want to increase protein intake. So um, protein intake or protein needs when dieting are generally increased, which will help with the maintenance of, of muscle tissue. So there was a study that was actually put out by Eric Helms. This isn't something that is extremely well studied, but he did do a uh, study on the um, benefit of increasing protein intake uh, during a dieting phase, during a deficit. And uh, it was shown that between 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of lean body mass um, was most beneficial for preserving muscle tissue. So for most, that's going to be a little bit of an increase in, in protein intake. So for the average like American population, we're looking at like 1.25 to 1.5 grams per body weight. Yeah. Um, we also have to consider that we're, we're decreasing everything else. So we're decreasing carbohydrates during your diet. We're decreasing fat. So those are our energy substrates, but we want to make sure that we have enough protein 
intake because increasing protein, first of all, it's got the highest thermic effect of feeding. So you're not, you're going to burn more as a result of eating more. And also you want to maintain tissue in, in terms of doing so. Um, the other thing that I look at is you need to have sufficient fat intake um, because sufficient fat is needed to maintain hormonal balance uh, for both men and women. So generally what we're looking at in the research is between 0.5 and 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, and then what I generally suggest is fill the rest in with carbs. Carbs are our preferred fuel substrate. So you want to eat as many carbs as possible, but realize you're going to have to continually reduce it as you get deeper and yeah. deeper into the diet. But it should be, you know, a lot of people take like a ketogenic approach. I don't think that's optimal because you really do need carbohydrates and glycogen to fuel training performance, especially if you are doing a sufficient amount of volume. Um, and then on the last aspect of that, that's where I utilize these nonlinear dieting approaches like refeeds. Um, I use them to restore glycogen, increase training performance and recovery. Um, they can transiently, so mean acutely raise leptin levels, which is the biggest hormone that we're seeing a down regulation in, and also increasing carbohydrates, which is the main, um, the main method I use to increase calories during a refeed, are going to help lower cortisol. Um, so that's going to help reduce diet fatigue and increase energy intake, which will also impact energy expenditure because, like you just said, when you increase your calories for a, a, a client, their meat upregulates. So we're going to put them in a higher energy flux situation, which Energy flux is essentially a situation in which energy intakes is higher, but also energy outputs higher. And yeah. then the last thing I do to attenuate uh, the down regulations from metabolic adaptation is I track steps. And I do this very incrementally. So I actually take clients before they start a diet and I find out their baseline meat level. So essentially it's super simple. I have them either use a, a Fitbit, an Apple watch, um, a pedometer, and we get a weekly average for the last four weeks going into a diet. So that's able to give me, we, we do a scale, you know, each week, um, we'll get the average for that week. Then I'll do a, what was their monthly average and say it was 8,000. In the beginning phase of their diet, we're going to maintain 8,000. And then if need be, I might titrate that up a little bit. And the reason being is not because they're, you need to increase meat to burn fat because the maintenance of it is going to be good enough in and of itself, but it's because as we become more efficient, we burn less for doing the same amount of activity. So now 8,000 steps during a surplus, say that burned hypothetically 500 calories, that might only be burning 400 calories a couple weeks into your diet and so on and so forth. It's going down. So now, like I said, we essentially have to do more and we get less in return. Yeah. I don't, actually, that first one, that first one's actually pretty interesting because I feel like this even applies to people in a surplus. Um, managing training volume i've i've had this discussion multiple times and i'm not going to get into it again because i'm a training to failure guy and there's a lot of yeah. people out here who i've gotten hate from um and a lot of people that disagree but i'm always up for it i believe there's a mix um but it comes down to how well like you said how well they can recover it comes down to recovery capabilities before applying a specific training volume um so i look that's what i look at when anybody even starts with me is how well their recovery capabilities are. So I always take the first week as an observation week. And I see, cause typically people come to me and they, some people don't track before, or if they do, they don't know specifically how much they eat. So I always use the first week as like, they track everything in my fitness pal. And then I base all my numbers and all their neat levels off of that first observation week. And with the training volume, I purely understand that because I've taken people down from six days of training to down to four and inflammation drops like that. And they'll lose like three pounds of water weight 
just from the two extra days of actually recovering. So, so to touch on that, actually, so I've had a lot of people fight, you know, even clients. So I have a couple clients that are IFB pros. I have a couple guys that went to Olympia and a lot of the times we, and, and believe me, I'm in the same boat. There are certain things that I've utilized in the past that because they worked for me, I believe they're the golden standard and, or at the time I believe they were the golden standard. So the same thing could be applied to the context of a professional bodybuilder. A lot of times we'll see something work for them and in their minds, because it worked for them, they think it should be applicable to everyone else. And that isn't the case. You are an end of one. You are your own experiment. Yeah. But what we need to realize is that everything needs to be customized towards the individual. However, there are more optimal and more efficient ways to get a better result. So I've taken a lot of guys that they come to me with this super high training volume that they're honestly, it's looking almost like a CrossFit, like it's like a glycolytic session. Yeah. They're doing giant set training. <laughs> you know, they're doing a bunch of supersets and they're doing you know, it's almost like a circuit training and they're training intensely. You know what I mean? They're, they're putting a lot of effort into the gym, but their actual load on the bar isn't progressing on a week to week basis. There's no progressive overload underlying the actual structure of their training. And they're not getting the most out of every set. The reason they're getting a sufficient stimulus is because they are doing so much. So they might be doing a 70% effort, you know, or we could look at RP or RRI scales. You know, I'm someone that I want to stay between, you know, an eight to 10 RP at all times. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing a five to six, you are going to have to do sufficiently more volume to make up for the lack of intensity. That's what a lot of people don't realize. But when we're in a dieting state, a lot of people look at training as a component of energy expenditure where we're just trying to burn more calories. And that's what I'm always trying to break people out of, especially my clients. I'm saying, listen, the training aspect of your fat loss program is to maintain tissue. It's to provide a stimulus that you can adapt and recover from. The rest of the fat burning component, the nutrition is what's going to contribute to the fat burning by putting in a caloric deficit. The cardio is going to help increase energy expenditure, which in a greater, you know, put you in a greater deficit and everything else that we utilize within the context of your programming are the fat loss components. So I like breaking up in the day into, you know, say like a muscle building section and then a fat loss section. So the morning might include, you know, some fasted cardio. Yes, the research is out, you know, obviously fasted versus fed cardio, it's equal, but I want it, I want to be specific. And a lot of times, you know, here on podcasts, people will highlight this and they'll say, well, there's no difference between fasted and fed cardio because the, the fuel substrates might be different, but essentially in a 24 hour research study, this, you're burning the same amount of calories. And that is correct. Brad Schoenfeld has showed that. However, when you introduce certain agents, it completely changes it. So if we're to get, introduce even a natural agent, like um, an alpha antagonist like Yohimbi, yep. it's going to help liberate fatty acids in the bloodstream. You're going to burn them off as energy. If we're, we introduce something like L-carnitine, whether it be in an injectable form or an oral form, it's going to help to transport fatty acids into the mitochondria to be burned off as energy. If we introduce even more so something like a growth hormone, we're going to be able to increase lipolysis within a fasted state. And that's where these, these little things become much more evident in terms of their efficacy. So I think a lot of times people will label someone as a bro and they'll say, oh, well, that, that you know, pro bodybuilder, that coach makes them do fasted cardio and they laugh at them. But really, you have to realize that you're not seeing all the context and the, the things that are applied within the background of that programming. Yeah. And so I like breaking up the day into some fat loss sections. The fat loss sections are, are so some of your meals. So maybe it's, it's more of, you know, protein fat based meals um, where we're reducing the amount of carbohydrates. So there's a lower insulin load on your body. And then around the training is when we're prioritizing, you know, your carbohydrate intake, 
and your protein intake to maximize muscle protein synthesis. We're going to help minimize muscle protein breakdown. And we're also fueling the training in and of itself and then fueling the recovery. But within that training session, it should be all about stimulating tissue. It should not about, be about burning an excessive amount of calories yeah. because we have the rest of the day to do that. We have, we could do that through low level intense or low level activity. So that's where our walks, you know, I, I utilize a lot of post-meal walks with my clients to regulate blood sugar, but also help with, with their total uh, step count for the day and things of that sort. But I really, I always hone in and I feel like that's the number one things people make a mistake on. There are some people that are high intensity trainers. So their training doesn't change from an off season to a, um, to a contest prep. And that's honestly, I think the best approach because you want to dance with the one that brought you. So yeah, if you were yeah. training high intensity, <laughs> If you were training with uh, one top set and then a back off set during your, your off season, it was working great for you, continue doing that. Make sure that your intensity is higher. And I've gotten into debates with people. And I've even had clients come to me and say, and put me in a predicament where it's like one or the other. So pick a camp, which I hate doing because I'm usually always in the middle. But they'll <laughs> say, would you rather me do higher volume and less intensity and less load on the bar and essentially higher reps? Or would you rather me stay with a lower rep range and hit more a uh, higher intensity, so a nine or ten RPE, and do less sets in the gym. And I always side with the with the left side, which is higher intensity, hit a sufficient stimulus, try to hit as many of you know your top sets with with perfect execution as possible, and utilize and allow that to be a sufficient stimulus because you have less energy substrate, so you're not going to have enough fuel reserves to really fuel that extra volume that you would be doing in the other instance. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I always say, I actually wrote this in one of my posts the other day. I was like, get strong in every single rep range than you possibly can. And it's going to pay off no matter what. That's literally what I say. I'm like, you could test out your 20 rep max and I guarantee you're going to benefit from it. I was like, 100%. whatever you do, just don't test out a two rep max. It was like, you no, test out two I, rep I max. It was like, I was like, you got to, I was like anything under like five reps. I'm like, Stop there. I'm like, my, my top sets are always six to 10. And then my clients' back off sets are somewhere between 12 to 12 to 25 reps, just depending on the exercise and what they, and where it's placed in the workout. Yeah. Hypertrophy is a forgiving adaptation. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's, I mean, studies will show this, but also just our own personal experience, anything between, I, I personally stay within six to 30 reps, but every one of those sets is close to failure. Yep. So it's, I'm making sure I'm pushing myself to the limit where that's where I don't agree with some of the very high volume advocates that they stay a bunch of reps in reserve where they're doing these high rep sets, but they're doing it with saving some gas in the tank so that they can do five, six, seven sets of an exercise where I don't feel like, like why waste your time? You know, especially in a dieting phase, if you are yeah. in a hypercaloric phase, you're in an off season and you really want to, you know, elongate your training sessions and really accumulate volume by all means, but during a uh, calorie deficit. I really try to impress upon people. Listen, make your, your training efficient and intense. Yeah. And last one. Well, I guess I'm going to have to have you come back on to do reverse diets. Cause we're going to do both metabolic adaptations and reverse diets, but we kind of got stuck on just metabolic yeah. adaptations. Um, so the last one that I have for discussing it is, you know, there's always, there's always the problem with the gen pop client and you always have to teach them kind of how to actually the diet hacks, which is eat more fruit, eat more veggies. Everybody comes to you with the problems I see is everybody comes with me like processed foods and they try to fit those foods into their diet and it doesn't work. And it leads to like sometimes even binging episodes or inconsistencies throughout the week or inconsistencies throughout the program. Um, so what's kind of the difference between 
the metabolic adaptations and someone being inconsistent with the program? Because I feel like this is a big one. No, absolutely. So there's oftentimes, and I've had this in my own experience and you see this in the literature, and this is why people have often mistaken things like starvation mode and metabolic damage. So first and foremost, like just to define like starvation mode, it was a concept that a lot of people brought to the forefront that you essentially could get to a point within your calorie intake that you dieted for so long that dieting no longer worked for you. So, you know, a hypothetical instance would be, I had a lot of girls claim this. They'll come to me and they'll say, I'm eating 800 to 1,000 calories, but I'm no longer losing weight. I want to explain to everyone here, metabolic adaptation does slow fat loss. Now, keep in mind the key word is slow. It does not stall, it does not halt fat loss. Yeah. You will continue being able to lose body fat as long as you put yourself in a sufficient energy deficit. So your calories are low enough. So for instance, if you stop losing um, body fat at 1800 calories, if you're tracking it correctly, then putting yourself at 17 or 1600 calories will elicit effects. Will it elicit as much of an effect as you did in the beginning of your diet when you took your calories from 3000 to 2500? No, because you're more downregulated but it still will elicit a result because you're putting yourself in a calorie deficit. Now, starvation mode is something very similar to what you're, you're um, talking about because a lot of people will come to me with that whole starvation mode thing, and, and it's being scientifically disproven. I mean, there essentially no one is, um, say, excluded from dying of starvation. That's really what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's, there's people that will claim this and will say, I need to eat more to lose more fat. That's theoretically impossible. That's not how the law of thermodynamics works. Let's think about it. Let's remove ourselves from the personal component of it. So, for instance, do you have a pet, Andy? Yeah. Do you have it? What do you have? I have a puggle. He's actually okay. so you have a dog. he lives with my sister, but he's here for he's here for the next week with us. So awesome. So if you went to the vet and they told you, hey, listen, your puggle was overweight, would you feed him more to make him lose lose uh, <laughs> weight? No, no. So we have to, we have to remove ourselves sometimes. And that's what I have to look at. Sometimes I have a very personal connection with a lot of my clients, but I also have to look at things from a theoretical perspective and a very logistical perspective. So people will come to me with this starvation mode and often, often it comes down to inconsistencies and an error in tracking. So what a lot of people fail to realize with, with fat loss is that a diet is seven days a week. So a lot of times what we'll see is we'll have someone be a five day dieter. That's what I refer to them all. So the five days, they're perfect on their diet where they're going to work. They're in a really good structure. But on the weekends, it's been shown in the research that we're more predisposed to overeat on weekends. There's more social outings. Um, you have more accessibility to hyperplatable foods and you have less structure within your, your um, you know, routine. And also the prevalence of drinking alcohol, which causes a disinhibition in your ability to make decisions is also increased on weekends. So a lot of times I have to put a caveat with people that come to me with the whole starvation mode thing and saying, Hey, listen, you know, my, my, I'm suffering from metabolic adaptation. My body's too downregulated. We need to look at things from an everyday context. And that's where I go to them with my gen pop clients. And I say, I want you to make a journal for me. And it's a daily entry, everything that you eat. So for me personally, I usually utilize meal plans with my clients because I want to have more control and really give them a better outline of yeah. what they should be eating. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not things to be interchanged, but the say the, the options or, you know, the interchangeable uh, food swaps will be equal in caloric count. So I know that it's not going to skew their energy balance. However, I'll have Gen Pop clients come to me and do that weekly outline where I just want them to write down in a journal, physically write it down. So there's no, I'll see if there's an erase because, you know, typing it on phone, you could always erase that. I make them physically journal it. So if 
they get, you know, they want to neglect or they get embarrassed. They want to cross it out. I'm going to see that. So I have them take a picture of it after the end of the week. And generally what I'll see is it's not that they're suffering from metabolic adaptation and that's the reason for them stalling and fat loss. It's because they veered off the plan. They might've had, you know, a, a little slip up. They might've had a snack. They might've had a handful of, of nuts, something that they consider healthy, but A, they're not tracking it. So they have no, um, you know, awareness of the calorie intake that they're actually taking in that's offsetting their, their energy balance for the week, or they're utilizing things like a cheat meal or, you know, things that aren't structured, which is why I utilize refeeds, which we'll talk about during our, our reverse dieting um, episode, but I'll utilize refeeds to increase their calorie intake, but in a strategic manner where it benefits them best because a refeed is, is shown in the research to also help offset some of these metabolic adaptations, but they're predominantly in the form of carbohydrates, which are going to help restore glycogen. It's going to help you know, increase training performance. It's going to increase need because of the increase in energy uh, availability. So those are beneficial aspects, but if they're veering off the, the bandwagon or the plan one day per week and they're utilizing this cheat meal, it might be offsetting the entirety of the, the um, caloric deficit that they made throughout the week. So that's where I really have to separate things. And with gen pop clients, I have to be a little bit more, I guess, strategic with how I word things because a lot of times yeah. they will try to get around things. An athlete, you know, I work, I'm very fortunate. I work with a lot of high level athletes where they'll just say, Hey, listen, Brian, I fucked up. They're very self-aware. They're not embarrassed by it. They just say, hey, listen, what do I need to do to undo what we did last week? And that's where we can take a proactive approach. But I find that with gen pop clients, it's not that they purposely do that. I mean, some do try to yeah. avoid admitting to things, but sometimes it's just that they don't have a great enough understanding of nutrition to realize that yes, nuts are healthy, but taking in an unmeasured amount that could amount to three, four, 500 calories over your caloric intake for the day is going to be deleterious for your health or for your fat loss progress. So that's where we really have to track their, their habits and realize and, and analyze whether they're matching up their habits on a daily basis or matching up with the nutrition plan and the energy deficit that you've created for them. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'm actually about to get on a client phone call about talking about this exact thing. So he probably, he might listen. And if he listens, he knows exactly who I'm talking about. Um, and it's not a bad thing. It's just like something, it's something you have to work on with, with gem pop. I always find it's always more of like people who compete or people who are serious, which I have a few of those clients, they get it. It's like, it's already that habit's been built in them. So now Absolutely. with gem pop, it's always building the habit. But we also have to remember as coaches that you don't know what you don't know. So when I started in this, I didn't realize that there were certain metabolic adaptations. So when I would see that I'd stall out, I would say, oh, I just need to increase cardio. But really, maybe it was that I needed to increase my knee or I needed to make up for the fact that I was being like I, I talked about that compensatory laziness. Well, there was times that I was doing two hours of cardio during a prep early on. But the reason I had to do that was I was reducing the energy expenditure throughout yeah. the day. By being more sedentary, sitting in my desk more often, not going on walks after meals, things that were in my normal daily habits. So we don't know what you don't know. So a lot of times, that's why we, from a coaching perspective, first of all, we can never go in an accusatory manner. So it yeah. can't be, you know, you're messing up, you're not following the diet. It might be, yes, they might not be following the diet and it might be due to a lack of adherence, but it's not a purposeful lack of adherence. It's something that we need to analyze and say, listen, their habits are different than mine or yours. So to them, their old lifestyle used to be that before bed, they would have a snack and they thought nothing of it. Or, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a case with, I had a, a client, a gen pop client that had a night eating habit and he never realized it. 
You know, this was just something normal. And it was something that he had noticed that he would have like peanut butter, an open tub of peanut butter, like in his, his kitchen when he would wake up in the morning. But he lived, he had a wife, he had kids, never thought about it. So we got into a dieting phase and initially he was, he was losing fat, you know, pretty rapidly. You know, we induced, I, I believe like 400 to 500 calorie deficit. He was doing well. And a couple of weeks into diet, like it wouldn't budge. And I was asking him how his sleep quality was. And he kept saying that his sleep quality was diminishing more and more. He was waking up more in the middle of the night. But other than the fact that he wasn't having sufficient sleep and I was seeing that his blood glucose was starting to shift, I was saying, all right, well, that's, that's normal because we do see blood sugar management issues yeah. as a result of lack of sleep. So that's, that's shown in the literature. That's something I've seen time in and time again. But I was starting to see that it was skewing quite, quite like dramatically, like to the point that it was pre-diabetic. He was over 100 milligrams per deciliter okay. in the morning. So I'm saying, all right, you know, you're saying that you're lacking sleep, but you're going from say eight hours to like six and a half. It's not, you know, your blood sugar was around 75 milligrams per deciliter. And now we're 20, 25 milligrams, you know, higher. It's not accounting for that. So it was that he was having in the middle of the night. Um, I forget what type of, it was like a cracker and he would have <laughs> peanut butter. And it was so subconscious that he didn't notice until his wife found him in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and the next check-in, he goes, listen, I don't remember doing this. This must be a patterning that I've had forever. I've seen this peanut butter container on the, you know, many times that I've come in. It's not every single night, but many times before we were dieting, I would see it say once a week. But as he dieted, first of all, his ghrelin levels, his hunger hormone was spiking through the roof. Now he was sleeping less. And it really took us analyzing all these different aspects. All right, he's not losing weight. His blood sugar management is off. Um, you know, sleep is off. So there's a, there's a time period in which this could, could have happened, these deviations. And then his wife catching him us to really get to the root cause to say, all right, during the day, you're perfect, but at night you're not. So what do we have to do? So really in this case, what I had to do was I had to, um, you know, retime his nutrient timing and put some carbohydrates at, before bed and some special yep. supplementation to induce serotonin production. So he slept deeper, get a bigger meal before bed. He was more full. And then also we put his peanut butter and crackers in one of those lock drawers. You ever see those with the timers? <laughs> And they couldn't access it until the morning. So it's, you know, sometimes like those are out of the box things. But as a coach, I feel like we always have to go out of our way and above and beyond to really mitigate what issues a specific client is. Just because just because I don't deal with night eating doesn't mean that I shouldn't help someone that does. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly. That's actually the thing. I'm going to use this as quick example right before we get off here. Um, he actually always puts on his, on his check-in sheet that he gets hungry at night. So what now I'm doing is shifting around 50 grams of carbs like an hour before bed so he hits that serotonin he gets that serotonin feeling going up and he feels good so when he goes to bed he's fine he's not going to get up or anything or he's not going to cheat it's most likely going to lessen that if it ever happens so that's why i that's why i made that move but it it kept it was a pattern of looking at it for like three weeks i saw that and then and then kind of we delved deeper into it and it always and as a coach, this is like my advice to other coaches is always ask more questions. If you see patterns in their biofeedback, more questions you get, 100%. the more they're actually, like you said, they're less likely to hide this information. If you ask them the right way and you word it the right way, they're more, they don't feel guilty for actually answering those questions. Right. So, um, well, no, this, this has literally been a masterclass on metabolic adaptations um before we go i do the same three questions um with every single with every single guest um first one is what three things do you want people to leave with um whether it's 
with metabolic adaptations or just in general? First and foremost, let's I'll hit on the metabolic adaptation part. First, don't fear metabolic adaptation. I see a lot of people when they hear about this subject, they either they try to avoid it or they think of it as this boogeyman that it is a really um, detrimental thing. Realize that it's something, embrace it. Realize, you know, try to understand it to the best of your ability. And by understanding, you're going to be able to mitigate it better. Um, the second thing is taking a customized approach to your nutrition or to your client's nutrition. So my biggest advice, and like we said in the beginning, combine the literature and the research with your anecdotal personal experience, because just like I hit on in the Matador study, I think the study was done, you know, phenomenally. And for obese populations or gen pop populations, it's extremely applicable. But for your higher level athletes or your lean physique athletes, it's not going to be. So we always have to realize that we have to put research in subsectors to what population it applies to. And we can't just take this generic, just both in the bro science world and the, or the real science world, we can't take these generic approaches to people's nutrition training and supplementation. It really does need to be customized and you need to you know, try the approach yourself. So like I said with you, and we were speaking about yesterday, I did utilize diet breaks with certain clients, but I didn't see a very tangible effect where it was noticeable with many of them where it warranted the extra time. So that's my experience. That's what the research says. But like I said, in your case with gen pop clients, completely applicable and something you should utilize and you should try because we're never gonna know unless we experiment and we try ourselves. Yeah. So, and then the third thing is, um, just always be willing to be open-minded to things. So just because something is popular, um, something is promoted, especially within the social media realms, like for instance, the reason I got into metabolic adaptation was because I kept hearing about this metabolic damage and these, these starvation mode and so many popular nutrition coaches. I know Anthony, you probably weren't really big into this space at that time, seven years ago, I won't name the coaches, but some of the most prominent coaches and researchers in our industry now we're making eBooks off this shit. They're making a ton of money undoing people's metabolic adaptation. And, you know, not for nothing, but I, I don't like advantageous sales marketing and, and yeah. things. And that's the same thing I hit on with diet breaks yesterday. I feel like a lot of people promote them without really understanding the physiology behind them. And it's almost like it's a sexy appeal for clientele. <laughs> like, hey, listen, you diet with me, you're going to get a break. We have to realize we have to be honest, especially with our clientele. And as people that are looking to get coaches, really do your research behind a coach because it's great when you're able to look at a coach that says, Hey, listen, I don't know everything, but I'm going to do my best with you rather than someone that promotes one ideology and one, you know, approach to things as the end all be all, because there never will be, there are many journeys or many paths within nutrition, supplementation and training that will get you to the destination you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I always say that you kind of just took the words out of my mouth. The last one, I'm like, I've been coaching now for, officially like a year like this week so awesome man happy anniversary I'm, man so i'm still new to it um and there's been a lot of heat about people just coming in here being new online coaches so to get into this game there's always a lot of heat but you know i've kind of been building up what i can and i'm always learning and that's why i kind of give clients i'm like i might not be the smartest i might not get the results exactly right the first time but i'm gonna learn so much from working with you that it's going to pay off for both of us eventually. So that's why I always tell them. Um, second question. Um, what three, I'm going to do this cause you're a big podcast person. What three podcasts would you recommend everybody listen to? Ooh, all right. So that's hard. Um, I have actually a podcast that I, I do weekly. So I don't know if I want to name that one and, and sound preferential, but um, <laughs> I do do one. So let, can we include that as a fourth? 
We'll uh, we'll put that in the next question because you're going okay. to be able to give yourself a little shameless plug in the next question. So hey. we'll put that one in the next All one. Right. So first and foremost, I have to plug um, the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. That's by Ben Pakulski. Uh Ben is someone that I've been um, – I've mentored under since 2011. So I got into it very early when he first had his first programs. I went to multiple of Ben's seminars. He's kind of going in a different realm, uh, a different fashion. So if you guys are more like physique enthusiasts and more into competition prep and bodybuilding, he might not be for you now. But his evolution in this industry is something that I really admire. He puts a lot of great applicable knowledge out to – to this demographic that covers many other things other than just bodybuilding and physique enhancement. He covers brain enhancement, um, just happiness, life, positivity, things of that sort. So it's an all encompassing viewpoint on how to better yourself as a man, just not as, not just as a physique. Yep. So that's the first one. The second one, I have to plug the excellence cartel. I love the guys over there, Jason, Jeff, and Jeff, um, phenomenal guys. They put out incredible content and they're super successful coaches. So I really admire the fact that they get on every week, they share their knowledge, they do podcasts with some of the best minds in the industry, but then they also do ones on business and, and they help coaches like yourself and, and me. They, they also love featuring coaches. So they allowed myself, they allowed my um, client and your friend Thomas to get on. So they provide a platform, which is, is awesome. And then let me see a third, a third podcast. You know, I have to plug, um, I'm trying to think. I have so many friends that do podcasts that I feel kind of torn, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, let me see. That's a hard one. I mean, I, I do, I really do enjoy your podcast as well, but um, let me go with the OPD podcast. I don't know if yeah. you guys are familiar with that. It's, uh, it's Austin's my, buddy. my men Austin's my mentor. So awesome. Awesome. So Austin's a great guy. I, uh, I worked with him years ago and then also Joe Jeffrey. And I think they have a phenomenal podcast, very different than the other two that I just named, but phenomenal guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite too. Um, that's what got me started into learning more about Austin and got got me into having him on the show. Um, and last question: This is probably going to be the easiest one for you out of this whole out of this whole uh, podcast. Um, time to just shameless plug yourself. Where can people find you? Anything you kind of want to just shout out um, that you do? Go ahead. Awesome. All right, I appreciate that first and foremost. Um, you could, guys can find me at at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram. I'm most active on Instagram, but I also have a Facebook account that you guys can reach out to me. I'm constantly um, answering DMs. I get a couple hundred a day with different questions and stuff. Um, so I, I get back to everyone. It's not always in the most timely manner. I try to do like 24 hours because I'm super you know, OCD about getting to my messages. <laughs> but any questions you guys have, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm big into interacting. I also do one educational post at least a day. So I do deep dives into the topics that we covered, but really anything that I get a DM about that I feel that will help the masses. There are so many posts that I've done over the years. Uh, I have 2000 plus posts and most of them educational that have literally come from questions that, have, that are from random people that have DM me saying, Hey, listen, can you break down uh, fat loss physiology? And I'll say, yes, but you know what? This would really benefit everyone. So let me do a post. I'll, I'll send it to you, but also I'm going to do something on my platform that will stay permanent that you could refer people to, but also that many people can benefit from. So that's where you guys can find me there. And then also I do a weekly podcast with a few friends of mine called the, the every calorie counts podcast. So we just started that. I'm on a part of season two. So we're about six podcasts in um, it's myself and another two coaches that are, are local in the New Jersey area. And we really just take a lot of the, the insight that we have to our own clients and to our experience, both in bodybuilding preps ourselves and kind of break down one topic every, every podcast. So we've done everything from like how to survive the holidays 
to, I did my own peaking protocols where I shared like a lot of the ins and outs of like how I peaked two of my pro clients recently um, to just Q and A's. So those are the best ways to find me. Awesome. Well, I look forward to having you back on to do reverse dieting. Um, I haven't done that. I don't think I've done that topic yet. So that'd be really good to do a deep dive into that one. Um, I really, I really appreciate you coming on today's episode. Um, I look forward to having you back on and everybody, if you can do us a favor, if you really did enjoy this episode, uh, tag Brandon and I on Instagram, on your stories, uh, share the episode with a friend and definitely subscribe to the podcast because the more it gets out, the better guests that I can get on and the better guests I can get on equals better content for everybody. So thank you everybody. Uh, thank you, Brandon. And thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the Ace of Spada podcast.